if you want to open your Bibles, if you prefer to, you know, work through your, the, your biblical text, if you have a translation that you really like, the vast majority of where we're going to be is 1 Samuel 11. So you can open there and you can follow along. Most of the story that we tell is going to be found in the pages of, of 1 Samuel 11. And so you can feel free to follow along there, or you might want to make notes in your Bible, and that's, that's great too. Uh, if not, you have the verse packet in the back of the packet that you should have picked up at the doorway when you walked in. Uh, so if you uh, haven't got one of those, feel free to get one of those. Uh, there's blanks to fill in and all kinds of fun little funtivities for us to do along the way uh, that you can take advantage of and, and do, and uh, so it's all good. Um, we've been talking about God establishing His kingdom through the nation of Israel, uh, he, uh, he has brought them out of the land of, Israel, land of Egypt, out of slavery, brought them through Sinai, through the wilderness, been through all of that. We've gone up into the crossing of the Jordan. They've gotten into the land. They started to disperse the land. And now they're settled in the land that we know as the promised land. And their clans were very fragmented. They were broken apart, more or less. They're sort of independent little tribes kind of across the entire land. And they're intermixed with a bunch of people that were already in the land to begin with. People that, were, that they have come to essentially drive out. And the Lord has told them, go forward and drive them out. And we're going to do this slowly because if I drove them all out at once, then you would... It would be more land than you could manage. And so until you can get populated, you're going to slowly start to spread out and you're going to drive everybody out from the land. But we've also seen that they have failed to do that. They neglected God's word. They would rather see these people become their slaves. And God told them specifically, we don't want you to do that. I don't want you to do that because what will happen is you will start to adopt their gods and you will begin to run away from me. And what did we see in the book of Judges, but exactly that taking place. That Israel got into the land, they started dwelling around these people, and they started to adopt their gods. They started to resurrect high pl- or erect high places where they were worshiping uh, Baal and Ashtaroth and all kinds of other uh, gods of the Canaanites, and they began to bow down to them. And um, we saw in the book of Judges just this downward spiral of the nation of Israel as they slowly began to adopt the practices of the Canaanites And it led to, ultimately, their utter betrayal of the Word of God until the very end of the book of Judges. We see them about as far away from the Lord as you can possibly get. How do we know they're really far away? Well, in chapters 19 to 20 of the book of Judges, you've got 11 tribes attacking the tribe of Benjamin. So at the end of the book of Judges... You've got all of the nation divided against itself and in absolute, utter ruin and decay. And it says time and time again towards the end of the book of Judges, there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. There was no leadership there. And so in the leadership vacuum, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So then we saw as God had appointed judges time and time again, he actually rose up Samuel a righteous man who is directing the nation in righteousness and leading them uh, in truth and leading them in God's justice and establishing God's kingdom. God, res- God raised up Samuel um, in spite of Israel's obstinacy to him. And here is this person that they don't deserve. And what it was was a testimony to Israel that he's always going to be there and he's always going to provide for them. But in spite of Samuel's uh, reign as a judge in Israel, as more or less a prophet, priest, and king. Uh, In spite of all of that, in spite of him ruling righteously, the people usurped God's timing and said, we want a king like the rest of the nations. We don't trust you to protect us. We want a king like the rest of the nations. And so Samuel laments this, and he he doesn't know what to do. He's distraught. And God tells him, look, Samuel, it's not you, it's me that they've rejected. They have rejected me as king over them. And so we're going to give them a king. We're going to give them exactly what they want. And so they get Saul. When we met Saul in chapter 9, he was a nobody from nowheresville. He's looking for a herd of lost donkeys. 
Here is the shepherd of all of Israel, and as he is selected, he is in the midst of finding a flock that he cannot find, he cannot locate. Irony of ironies. He is appointed king of Israel, and then in the last chapter, he is pushing his heart against being a king of Israel. Is anybody you've ever seen as they uh, cast lots to figure out who it's going to be? It again lands on Saul as confirmation for the entire nation. And they go, all right, Saul's our guy. Where's Saul? And they go on a hunting party looking for him. They can't find him, so they come back to the Lord. And they have to kind of put their hat in their hand and depend on the Lord one more time. Okay, Lord, we know this is the king that you have selected for us, but uh, we can't find him. And God says he's hidden himself by the baggage. And so they have to go and find him by the baggage and drag him out. No, you're going to be our king. Saul is a big, tall, strapping young man. He's uh, the fittest among them all as far as physical stature. And he looks, uh, he looks the part of a king, certainly. Um, and so he's going to be their king. And so as we start to build this story of Saul being the king of Israel, I think what we have in our minds is a regal, somebody with a lot of money and prestige and power, someone who sits on a big throne and has like lions kind of just sort of laying down in front of him and guards standing at the front of his palace and, you know, a big bright purple robe that kind of just, you know, flows down in front of him and, you know, lots of servants attending to him and all of this kind of stuff. That's not even close to the picture that we get when Saul takes the quote-unquote throne in Israel. There's not even a throne in Israel. These people are nobodies. They were slaves not that long ago. They are a bunch of tribes in a, in a, in a region that they can't even tame the land. So they're not even filling up the land with their population. They're a small group of people compared to the size of the land that they're in. And the more we get into the book of 1 Samuel, the more parallels there actually are between the story of, of, of Saul and David and the end of the book of Judges. And I think we're going to see some of that tonight. And hopefully we'll pick up a lot of those breadcrumbs as we go on. <coughs> so when you're thinking about the nation of Israel, it's helpful to keep in your mind the current political situation that's going on in the land at the time. These people are about as divided as they can possibly get. And there's a question as to whether they're actually going to make it. We have divisions east and west. Remember, there's a whole host of tribes that have settled out east of the Jordan River. A whole group of tribes out there. And they were warned back in the book of Joshua, look, if you settle out there, it's going to be a matter of time before you're not a part of Israel anymore because you're out there in Nowheresville. And then, what's to keep you from when you walk back in and you see a whole bunch of people that don't recognize you anymore, what's to keep them from attacking you, thinking you're invading their land? Remember, there was the, the tribes out east of the Jordan. They thought as they were about to cross the Jordan, wait a minute, before we cross the Jordan, we should kind of set up a monument out here to be able to point back to everybody and say, see, we, our ancestors set that up. We're, we're Jews. We're Jews, just like you. And everybody thought that they were resurrecting or they were erecting uh, altars to pagan gods. And so there was the big skirmish and all that kind of stuff that happened there at the end of the book of Joshua. So there's east and west fragmentation. Then there's north and south fragmentation. Remember the end of the book of Judges that we just talked about? The tribe of Benjamin is doing scandalous things at the end of the book of Judges. And the whole nation of Israel joins forces against Benjamin and wants to go to war with them and does and decimates their tribe to practically nothing. <coughs> so when you look at this group of people, they are about as fragmented as you can possibly get. They're not a nation. They are just a bunch of little peasants, basically, fighting with each other. That's all they are. So basically, when Saul is appointed king and at the time of his reign, 
the Hebrew tribes were open to both external aggression and internal disintegration. Well, we've talked about the internal disintegration. They're, they're trying to break apart. But then there's also external pressures that are coming on them. Samuel, if you'll remember, when, when God raised up Samuel as judge, he squashed a lot of the Philistine forces from taking over the nation of Israel. So he had kind of put the, you know, the lid on a lot of the Philistine aggression. But they're coming back. Well, they're not going to stay there forever. They're coming back. And don't forget, they're in the land. They haven't been driven out yet. So not only the Philistines are a problem, but then as we're going to see tonight, the Ammonites are a problem too. They're out east of the Jordan River. They're out there causing a little bit of a ruckus. And what we also see in the text in 1 Samuel is that part of the reason they wanted a king is because they're hearing what the Ammonites are doing out there east of the Jordan, and they're thinking, oh, goodness, now we've got an external threat. There's all kinds of nations, north and east. Don't forget about Egypt to the south. What about them? It's just a matter of time before all of these nations go, wait a minute. You don't belong in that land. That's our land. And they try to come and take it. What are we going to do then? We need a king. Right? So this is part of the impetus behind getting a king. There's external aggression. There's internal disintegration. And so they want a king. Pardon the coughing. Um, Now, in addition to all that, he had no... Saul had no political ambition really himself. We saw that. He didn't want to be king, so he kind of pushed away from it. But Saul was king over people whose most urgent need was solidarity and a common national purpose, a national identity. Um, I think it will help with uh, remembering what Saul is doing here. That's the only reason I bring this up. But Saul's purpose essentially is to make Israel great again. All right? That's essentially what he's trying to do. Uh, or what Israel really wants is for him to do, is to have this sort of national purpose and for them to understand uh, how they fit together as a group of people. There's no other parallels between Saul and Donald Trump. Okay? None whatsoever. That's it. It just, I think it helps you remember that that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to come together as a nation and not be so divided and resist outside uh, forces. Now, what happens then? Well, the Ammonites happen. There's an outside force that comes against the nation of Israel. There is no uh, uniting factor like a, a opposition. There's nothing that unites a group of people like a common enemy. Um, the, in my lifetime, the, I think the time that I remember our nation being the most united, obviously I, I was born in 83, so that tells you kind of my lifetime and what I can remember. Um, lots of eye rolls that I just saw. Uh, I get it, okay, but I was born in 83, so the most united I remember us being was 9-11. I remember the events that surrounded it, and I I remember, you remember that scene of George W. Bush on the rubble in New York with a bullhorn in his hand, and he was like talking to the crowds that were there? And I remember watching on like, you know, CNN, MSNBC, all all the, and Fox News, and all, all the channels were basically it was like the only time I can ever remember in my lifetime where they were all saying the same thing, you know? I mean, it, it, it like, at that moment, it didn't really matter that he was a Republican or none of, that all kind of like, it was still, it was coming back. It was not going to stay dead for long, but it, it, it all kind of faded away and there was this sort of unifying voice where he was, saying, we're, we're going to smoke them out. And I remember that you know, phrase kind of being repeated in a lot of places. And, and there, there was this 
feeling of, uh, uh, there was kind of a common enemy. Everybody was on the same page. And that's what Israel really, it turns out, kind of needed, was to kind of get on the same page. And the Ammonites are going to provide that for them. Um, And so there's the Ammonite aggression that's coming up. And if you'll remember in the book of 1 Samuel, uh, you can read there in our passage list, 1 Samuel 11, 1 to 4. Will somebody read that for me? In the passage list, it's uh, the fourth one down. 1 Samuel 11, 1 to 4. All right, so there's this story of um, Nechash coming up to the Ammonites. I'm going to get a drink of water real quick, sorry. Thank you, sir. Um, Nechash is coming up, uh, who, who is over the Ammonites, is coming up to Jabesh Gilead, and he's approaching the men of Jabesh, and he tells them, I'm going to take your city. And they say, Phew. What do you want from us? We'll serve you. What do you want us to do? And he's, and he's like, well, okay. I'll gouge out your right eye, and then I'll take you. Makes sense. That's what you would do, right? Wouldn't you? Um, why does he do this? Well, it turns out the right eye is really important for a fighting man. And if you don't have a right eye, and all you are is weak-eyed, you just got one eye, you're not much good in battle. You're not good really for much of anything. And so, if that's the case, then you're going to be submissive. You're going to be a servant. All right? And so, Nahash comes up to um, them at Jabesh Gilead, and he tells them, you know, this, these are the conditions. If you do this, then, uh, then we'll be fine. I'll let you live. And they say, okay, well, I'll tell you what. Uh, you put us in a really tough position. Give us seven days. And if somebody doesn't come fight for us, then that's what we'll do. He says, he's pretty confident. So he says, okay, fine. I'll give you seven days. It's pretty generous, right? So uh, word gets back to Saul. When Saul is found, uh, he's plowing his field with his oxen. This is the king of all of Israel. This is what I'm telling you. This is not like a palace. He's not sitting on a throne. There's no throne. He is working as a servant in his own field. He's just plowing his own field with his oxen and doing his work. When they come and tell him, Saul, you're never going <clears> to <throat> guess what's happening, but uh, Nachash is wanting to kill all the people in Jabesh Gilead, and word has gone out that they need help in Jabesh Gilead. Now, it turns out <clears throat> that the Ammonites, when they were defeated by Jephthah more than 50 years earlier, they've been sort of plotting this revenge. So remember back in the book of Judges, this is Judges chapter 11, uh, Ammon is defeated there by the judge Jephthah. He, he, he basically ruined uh, the Ammonites. And so they're sitting there for about 50 years and they're plotting an opportunity to take advantage of the nation of Israel and take back what they feel like was rightfully theirs and get revenge. If you were Amon, when would you do that? Oh, I don't know. About the time they appointed a new king? Let's see what he's got, right? Let's bring the king on out here. Now, this is really complex because they selected Jabesh Gilead for a reason. 
And I'm going to tell you what that reason is. And it's, it's not necessarily super apparent in the text. You kind of have to follow the events of Judges and 1 Samuel to put together why they selected Jabesh-Gilead to begin with. It turns out Saul has a connection to Jabesh-Gilead uh, that they probably know about. They definitely know about. And it goes all the way back to the book of Judges. Um, so it was carefully selected. But not only because Saul has a connection there, but also because look at how far away Jabesh Gilead is for the nation of Israel. All right. Uh, sea of Galilee is going to be up here on the ceiling. Dead Sea is going to be down here in the baptistry. This is the Jordan River. Okay? All right. Saul is here in Gibeah. That becomes his capital, pretty much. Okay? So there's some debate about that, but for the most part, that's his capital. Um, Jabesh Gilead, notice where it is. It's on the other side of the Jordan River. Have you ever moved an entire army across a big river? Well, no, I know none of you have, but I haven't either. But can you imagine? Back in the day when you couldn't just, well, even today, it's pretty difficult to move an army across a river. You have a lot to really think about. You're going to create a bridge? How are you going to do that? How are you going to get an entire army across the river? So they picked Jabesh Gilead, which knowing that Saul's going to have to take all of his men all the way up here, go across the river before they finally get into Jabesh Gilead. Ammon, which is out here, is working their way up this territory before they select Jabesh Gilead to attack, knowing that Saul's going to come out there to try to defend it. Well, Saul's automatically at a disadvantage because of the distance uh, that they're going to have to travel. But Jabesh Gilead is also the home of many of Saul's ancestors. How do we know that? Well, do you remember the story back at the end of the book of Judges of the, the Levite and his concubine? Do you remember the story in the book of Judges of the Levite and his concubine? It's right there at the end of the book of Judges. So if you'll remember, there is a Levite. He has this concubine. She is from Bethlehem. Of Where's Bethlehem? What territory is Bethlehem in? Judea. Yeah, it's in Judea, which is in the tribe of Judah. Okay, Bethlehem belongs to Judah. Put that in your mind, just Marker, you're going to need that for much later on in the Bible. But Bethlehem, Judah, just put those two together. Bethlehem belongs to Judah. Okay, so his concubine is from Bethlehem. She cheats on him. He goes to find her. She has run back to her father after the affair. And he is trying to win her back. And he says, I, you know, I, I, in spite of the affair, I want you. I want, I want to be with you. And so the... the couple meet back up and, and all is well and the father is, you know, enticing the man to stay and, and stay there with them and, and all of those kinds of things. And so the man and his concubine are quite happy, but they've got to get on the road. And so they finally, he talks his wife into, into going. And so they get up, leave their father's house in, house in Bethlehem and they go to Gibeah, as it turns out, where the Benjaminites are. And in the town of Gibeah, they discover there a group of people that are Benjaminites. These are, is, these are Hebrew people. These are is Israelites. They look more like the towns of Sodom and Gomorrah than they do anything else. They want to take the concubine and they actually rape her all night until she dies. That's the story. That's, how, that's virtually how the book of Judges ends. In this really graphic and nasty and horrific scene. And the man, the Levite, is so mad about it that he takes his concubine, he, this is really gory, so I'm sorry, chops her up into pieces and sends those pieces to the other 11 tribes in Israel. So they get this box of body parts. And they realize, I'm assuming there was some sort of a note 
or something that came with that that's telling them what happened. And so they get, they get this and they realize what the tribe of Benjamin has been up to. And so they decide they're going to mount an attack. And this is the, the, the essentially the battle is how the book of Judges really comes to a close. But Judah, or the tribe of, uh, of the nation of Israel, goes up against the tribe of Benjamin. And who is the first one to attack the tribe of Benjamin? It's Judah. She belongs to Judah. She's from Judah. So you have at the end of the book of Judges, the tribe of Judah battling the tribe of Benjamin. And the question really is, which value system is going to control Israel? Is it going to be that of the Benjaminites who would do this to a person? Or is it going to be that of Judah who are defending her honor? Judah, Benjamin. Saul's from the tribe of Benjamin. David's from the tribe of... Isn't that interesting? Okay, Um, so... (laughs) <laughs> it's interesting how these things come back uh, to fruition later on, almost as if this was planned. Okay, so, so basically, Judah goes up against, leads the charge against the tribe of Benjamin. It takes them three days. They seek the Lord's help. The Lord gives them the win on the third day, and they eventually decimate the tribe of Benjamin until all the fighting men, all the women, all the children are set to ruin. They put them to the sword and they burn them, dedicating them to the Lord. Except for 600 men who flee and they let live. So they don't completely destroy the tribe of Benjamin. And then they find some women in Jabesh Gilead. In fact, 400 virgins from Jabesh Gilead who they also spared. And they gave the 400 virgins from Jabesh Gilead to the men from the tribe of Benjamin. And so the men from the tribe of Benjamin married the 400 virgins from Jabesh Gilead and they had the Benjaminites. They repopulated the Benjaminites, of whom Saul is one. So, Saul's ancestry goes back through the town of both Gibeah and Jabesh Gilead. And I think Amon knows this. So they attack Jabesh Gilead to bring Saul out. Let's see what you got. Since you're the new king, let's see what you can do. This is an opportune time for Amon to take back what they lost uh, under Jephthah. All right, so brings us back to Nachash. Um, Nachash is what we think, we have reason to believe, he has been on a binge of terror among all of Israel east of the Jordan. He's really going through and he's been doing this. Now, how do we know this? Um, remember we talked about last week that in the book of 1 Samuel, There's a lot of things that we don't have. In fact, the book of 1 Samuel is one of the least put together books uh, of all the books of the Old Testament. It's the hardest to kind of piece together from archaeological evidence and from the scrolls and things like that that we have. We have a lot of uh, conflicting stuff and we have a lot of uh, missing pieces that we, in some, that we still haven't found yet. But the Dead Sea Scrolls helped us out a great deal because it provided for us a lot of things from the book of 1 Samuel that we either didn't have or needed clarity on. And so the, the, book, uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls have provided us that. Well, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, we also get an interesting little, we think it's an addition, right at the beginning of 1 Samuel 11. And it says this. You don't have this in your Bibles. This is, comes from the Dead Sea Scrolls. It says, Now, Nachash, the king of the Ammonites, had been oppressing the Gadites and the Reubenites, grievously gouging out the right eye of each of them and allowing Israel no deliverer. No men of the Israelites who were across the Jordan remained whose right eye, Nachash, king of the Ammonites, had not gouged out. 
But 7,000 men had escaped from the Ammonites and entered into Jabesh-Gilead. So that's what the Dead Sea Scrolls actually provide us. Now, the question is, is that original? Was that originally written in the text and then somewhere it was lost and it didn't appear again until the, you know, forever? And then we find the Dead Sea Scrolls and, hey, it's calling back to the original. We just don't know. We don't have enough evidence to say one way or the other. So it, we kind of, some Bibles will make note of it, or you might find it in a study Bible somewhere. You might find it in a commentary. But as of right now, we just think that it might be a historical notation that this was going on, for all we know. So we don't have any other clarity on it. But if that is at least speaking to the situation that was going on, you kind of get the idea. They were scared of Amon uh, moving up there and Nahash gouging out the right eye of all these guys. And they've heard of this. They want a king. Saul is appointed. And hey, Saul, here he is. He's attacking Jabesh Gilead. He's threatening to do the same thing that he's been doing for some time. You need to go and take care of this. Well, as soon as they tell Saul this, something happens to Saul. The Spirit of God came upon Saul and he took the yoke of oxen that he was plowing behind, and he slaughtered them. And do you know what he did then? He chopped it up into pieces, and he sent it to all of Israel. Why do you think he did that? That's what his ancestors did. He's calling back to that story. You better join me, and you better fight with me, or you're dead. That's what he's telling the rest of Israel. If you don't come and fight with me, you're going to look just like these oxen. Okay, there's more to this story, but... Let's keep going. Okay. You tracking with me so far? Questions? Okay. All right. So the Spirit of God uh, came upon Saul, and so he takes the yoke of oxen, he slaughters them, and he separates their remains, and he sends them to the rest of the nations. And he tells them basically to come, to come fight, uh, to fight with him, to join in the city's defense. Now, when that happens in Judges and in 1 Samuel, when the Spirit of God rushes on an individual or a group of individuals, you know holy war has been declared. That's what that means. Holy war has been declared. The Spirit of God rushes upon the judges. The holy war has been declared. The judge rises up and destroys whoever it is. Comes upon Samson, comes upon Jephthah, comes upon all of the judges before it is interesting in the book of Acts at Pentecost, there is a mighty rushing wind and the Spirit comes rushing upon who? The church. What does the church then engage in? Preaching of the gospel, which in the New Testament is tantamount to a holy war. All right, that neither here nor there. Uh, food for thought, think on that, chew on it. You can read it later. Um, so Saul gathers a bunch of men together and they go meet at Bezek. Uh, now, remember Bezek. Let me see if I can pull up um, the slides here. I think this is how I do it. There we go. Bezek is, you see it? Right there. So Saul goes up from Gibeah, meets here, and they're all going to camp there. They're going to all make their little base camp there at Bezek. He has uh, 3,000 fighting men there. All right, I think I got it. All right, perfect. So he has 300,000 men from Israel and 30,000 men from Judah there, and they are prepared to fight the Ammonites. 1 Samuel 11, 8 and 9. I've got that in your verse pack. Will somebody read that for me? All right. Now, <clears throat> yeah, okay. Now, um, so they, they got the men together at Betsek, and they're ready to kind of mount an attack against, um, against this guy. And they tell uh, the town of Jabesh Gilead, hey, we're here. Just, just tell them, hey, you'll do whatever you want, and we're going we're gonna to surprise them. 
And so the people, the Jabeshites, the Jabesh, people at Jabesh Gilead, tell the Ammonites, okay, yeah, we're going to gouge out our right eye. We're going we're to do whatever you ask. They're sort of giving it in this tongue-in-cheek sort of way, that, saying that they're going to surrender to them on the following day. And Saul divides the armies up into three groups, into three camps. That way, if you get surprise attacked, you don't lose your whole army all at once. It's a strategic move. Plus, you can attack in multi, uh, many different ways. Most likely, the way the text reads, it says the next day. Uh, that probably is at nightfall. Uh, what we would basically right now would be tomorrow. Uh, all right, so this would be like the next day. So they attack at the next day in the middle of the night, or at least in the, I think this is the third or fourth watch of the night, they attack, which would have been sometime in the early, early morning hours when it's still dark. They fought them until noonday and uh, basically killed them all. Now, there's some other really interesting things about this scene with this particular king or this particular leader of the Ammonites. Uh, you've probably not heard the word Nahash before, or at least you don't think you have, right? Anybody familiar with the Hebrew word Nahash? The reason I've said it a thousand times tonight, so you'd remember it. Nahash, Nahash. Um, Genesis chapter 3. Something comes into the garden. What is it? What is it? A Nahash, a serpent comes into the garden to deceive Adam and Eve. A nachash comes in, a serpent. So as it turns out, here we've got God's kingdom being established. God's kingdom is established through Saul as king over it. And what is the first thing that he's got to defeat? A nachash. Now, maybe that's just a coincidence. What do you think? No, it's not a coincidence at all. Um, a Nahash sneaks into the people, comes into the camp, comes into the kingdom, into Jabesh Gilead. And Saul, as the king, is appointed as the one to go and kill it. So as it turns out, the Ammonite king's name means serpent. And so Saul had been raised up as the new Adam over this kingdom and his first test was to go be confronted by the serpent. Now, would he crush his head? Would he be the snake crusher that we all thought he might be? Is there hope for the kingdom of God to flourish? Well, it sounds like there is. Because the king over God's kingdom has walked into the land... A serpent has crawled in and he has walked up to him and he has squashed him. It's the end of the story, right? All is good. Well, maybe not. The people, it seems, want to give credit to Saul. Uh, but Saul resists them. Look at 1 Samuel 11, uh, 12 to 13. Somebody read that for me. Then the people said to Samuel, who is, who is that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that they may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall... Be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Okay, so the people are like, yeah, who was that? Who were those people that doubted Saul? That wasn't, that wasn't me. I didn't doubt Saul, not for one minute. When we had to go to the Lord and we had to ask, where is our king? And he had to tell us he was hiding behind the bag. No, I didn't doubt, not for one second. Uh-uh. I thought, you know what? That's where, that's where strong military men hide. That's what they do. That's where they go and stand. He's just, he's just resting. That's all he was doing. Uh-huh. I knew it the whole time. No, no, no. They say, who were those people that, that doubted Saul's zeal and his passion, his ability to lead us? Let's put them to death. Let's kill them right now. And Saul says, no, 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 no. This wasn't me. This was Yahweh. Yahweh has accomplished salvation in Israel. Man, this sounds really good, doesn't it? This sounds... This sounds great. 
I mean, he has, he's been the snake crusher. He's giving credit to Yahweh. It sounds great. So Saul has this great victory, and Samuel gathers the people together at Gilgal to renew the kingdom. Now, why would they be renewing the kingdom? I thought they just established Saul's king over it. Why are they renewing the kingdom? There you go. The serpent has been crushed. They've probably also realized something. We, we did a bad. We got the snake crusher, and we realized the snake crusher is now telling us God was the one that delivered us. We, we wanted this king in sin. We were, we were sinful when we did that. Uh, we're, we're, we're sorry. We, sh- we shouldn't have done that. So Samuel gets people together and says, okay, we realize that all of this was founded on really rotten principles. You sinned in wanting a king over you in Saul, but nevertheless, you've got one. And it's God's appointed man, and he has crushed the serpent. So let's come back together. Let's renew the kingdom together. Let's commit from this day forward to be a people that are committed to the Lord's purposes, that are committed to eradicating sin, that are going to continue to crush the snakes. There's more snakes out there. We're going to crush the snakes. Let's, let's commit ourselves together to do that. And so they renew the kingdom. And so there's this great scene there at the end. Did I lose it all? I sure did, didn't I? Sorry. One more. Here it is, right there. So let's get together and they have this big party, and everyone's united. They're singing and making merry, where uh, they enter into a covenant with both Yahweh and the king, and the, they live happily ever after. Not but like for one more chapter, all right? So what ha- what's going to happen, and we're going to see this next, next week. I'm going to remind you of this next week. I'm going to teach. This is going to be the, pretty much the whole time next week. So you can say, I've already known this. Michael wants to tell you. Um, Basically, when they get together, they're going to meet back at Gilgal again after Samuel goes through and reminds them of all of these things in chapter 12. They're going to meet together at Gilgal again. Samuel has told Saul, when you get to Gilgal, wait on me for seven days. Wait seven days. Saul gets there, and he waits seven days. But on that seventh day, some of his men start to disappear. The enemy that's encroaching upon him looks really fierce. This is the enemy from the other side. And he's thinking, my men are leaving because they don't think I'm going to go and fight. I'm waiting for Samuel because he told me to. What am I going to do? So he goes ahead and makes the sacrifice instead, disobeys the voice of Samuel. For this, listen, for two sins, God will rip away the kingdom from Saul. That one and one other when he doesn't destroy an entire city that he should have. Two sins. David impregnated a guy's wife and then arranged for him to be killed. David had many, many wives and many, many concubines. And he's a man after God's own heart. Saul has these two things that happen and God rips the kingdom away from him. Because as it turns out, the snake that entered the garden in Genesis chapter 3 was more than just an existential threat. It was more than just a threat from the outside. It actually penetrated the heart. It was something that Saul couldn't even defeat was a corruption that had taken place on the inside where Saul, for some reason, does not want to listen to the voice of the Lord. And so he finds himself regularly disobeying the voice of the Lord. What are we going to see in Matthew chapter 1? But a character that's introduced who's promised to be of the line of David of the tribe of Judah, who is actually going to come and be the snake crusher. But the angel tells Joseph at the very beginning, he 
will save his people from their sins. Because as it turns out, there was only one snake crusher fitting for the role of not only crushing the serpent on the outside, but also the serpent on the inside. Had to do war with both. Turns out the human kings were only capable of crushing an enemy here and there, but nothing on the inside. Questions, comments? Do you picture people running with coconuts? Is there anyone else we can talk to? The Old Testament, man, is a, is, a, is a comedy of errors, I think. You just sort of look at all of the things. And there's, in, in every page of the Old Testament, particularly in the stories of like, Judges, Joshua and Judges, and um, in the first and second Samuel, first and second Kings, there's comedy on every page, there's drama on every page, there's um, sadness on every page. I mean, there's, it is loaded with just uh, tons of drama. I mean, today's movies have nothing on what's on these pages. If you just make a movie about what's there, it, it just, it would be so entertaining and rated R. Uh, none of us, we would all be saying, don't go see it. You can't go see it. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's, you know, it's, it's scandalous, yeah, but it's, it's there. You just have to read it, you know, and it, it comes alive eventually. No, no, no. They, they, honestly, like, all of this, so all of this, and, I, and I've say, I say this routinely, but probably I don't say it enough. All of these notes come from a myriad of sources. Um, it's just a matter of reading. And, I mean, honestly, a pastor has time to read. That's why they do what they do, I guess, you know. But, uh, but th- that's, mo- that's mostly it. It's a, it's a compilation of a lot of sources and um, people that have done much greater work than I. I'm just compiling it together, really, is all we're doing. So, other questions? Things that maybe weren't clear? Yeah, that's, a, that's just a designation for one of the Qum, uh, scrolls of Qumran. Uh, Qumran is the area in southern, Isra- uh, southern Palestine, southern Israel, uh, where the, the uh, scrolls, where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. So the Dead Sea Scrolls uh, were found by a, a, basically a tribe of Bedouin Arabs that, um, oddly enough, kid throws a rock into a cave hits a jar, some of you probably heard this story, hits a jar, he goes in there to investigate, finds all of these scrolls everywhere, um, takes the parchment back to his village. They use them because what would you, what would you use materials for if you're a Bedouin Arab in, the, in 1940? Uh, 1949, you would you know, use, put them to good use. So they made shoes out of them. And so they found these Bedouin Arabs, yeah, they found these Bedouin Arabs with uh, Dead Sea scrolls wrapped around their feet and they were like, wait, 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 you know? And so uh, they went to investigate these uh, caves and they found just mountains of uh, manuscripts from uh, first century BC. It predated a lot of the manuscripts that we found, whole scrolls of Isaiah and uh, tons of things that we've been missing and, and were just really helpful for biblical scholarship and to help us be able to translate the Bible, uh, especially the Old Testament, better. And so they've, they've been tremendously helpful. But out there at the caves of Qumran, there are, there's, there's still, there's probably mountains more Dead Sea Scrolls that have never been discovered that are just sitting out there. I mean, in Israel, you kick over a rock and you find a whole host of things. So speaking of which, we're taking a trip. Uh, I don't know if you've heard about it. Uh, we're taking a trip March 13th to the 22nd. I am bound to determine uh, to take some people there. It will change your life and the way you read the scriptures. We're going March 13th to the 22nd. We need one more person to go for the trip to make. One more person. So if you know that person or maybe you are that person, I would consider doing it. Talk to me afterwards.
Other questions? Things that weren't clear might be helpful. All right, good deal. Well, let's pray and then we'll get out of here. Heavenly Father, thank you for our time to just study your word and to talk about the things that are going on in the texts of scripture. And uh, I pray, Father, for uh, us as a church body as we turn the pages of scripture and as we read them, as we think about what's happening in there, as we look at the historical evidence, as we look at the archeological evidence, as we look at all of the other things that are pointing to the truths that are recorded there on the pages of scripture, I pray that the Bible would come to life for us, that we would see it with fresh eyes, that we would have a newfound respect for it, um, an an adoration, an admiration of what you have done for us in preserving your word, that we could read it, that we could understand it, that we could apply it to our lives, that it would still speak to us today, and that it would grow us through your scriptures into the people that you want us to be. I pray also that we not fall in love merely with the ink and paper, but the God that we find behind the ink and paper, the God that put those words there um, for us, that uh, wrote them with the finger of your Holy Spirit, um, that gave them to us so that we could be edified, so that we could um, be corrected, we could be rebuked, we could be um, uh, just so that we could stand in awe of who you are. Pray that through all of this study, what we end up with is awe and reverence for the God of the Bible, for you. That our desire, our deepest, our inward most desire is to worship you with our whole heart, with our mind, with our strength, with all of our being. That our our goal is to glorify the name of Christ in our worship and in our attitude, in the way we treat other people, in the gospel that we share. I pray that we'd be people driven by your spirit in unity, in love for one another, putting aside petty differences and desiring instead to edify one another, to lift each other up, to pray for one another, to encourage and yes, sometimes even admonish one another. Pray that all of those things would happen through the study of your scriptures, through the knowledge that we find there. Pray all of these things in Jesus' name, amen.